0: Hello, everyone. This is Alyssa Smith, one of the hosts of ENT in a Nutshell. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider taking a second to rate and review this podcast. And now, on to the episode.
1: Hello there, and welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Garrett Chobe, and today we have special guest, Eric Wong, to talk about skull base reconstruction. Dr. Wong is an associate professor and vice chair of clinical affairs at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center uh, with co-appointments in the departments of neurosurgery and ophthalmology. And on a personal note, he's uh, one of the main inspirations and reasons why I got into the field and has been a great uh, mentor and friend through the years. So Dr. Wong, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Garrett. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.
1: Absolutely. So our topic today is skull base reconstruction. And primarily we'll be discussing this in this in the sense of tumorous section or other endonasal cases. There's a separate episode out there on spontaneous CSF leaks, so we won't be discussing that too much today. But Dr. Wong, as we get started, I wonder if you might just give us information on the background of endoscopic skull-based surgery and reconstruction and sort of where we've come over the past decade or so.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's actually a really interesting evolution. Um, And you can see uh, that skull-based reconstruction was really, uh, unfortunately, one of the hindrances to the broad-scale adoption of endoscopic and a nasal skull-based surgery initially. Um, When this first began, uh, whether you believe it in the mid-80s or early 90s, um, using the nasal cavity to get to cellar tumors like pituitary tumors was actually pretty well accepted in many ways because we had used the nasal cavity to get there using a microscopic technique before um, but as it started to expand beyond that and they started to uh, expand the boundaries beyond the cella and the pituitary um, that's when actually we started to see some of the complications associated with a new technique And the primary complication was the reconstructive techniques that they used for pituitary tumors were really different from when you expanded that approach to the area immediately superior to that, um, like in the planum or the tuberculum. And it's an interesting area because the real estate's very tight there, but um, the reconstruction can be challenging, at least it was initially. And so when we just depended upon Uh, free tissues where like we take a tissue from somewhere else in the body like abdominal fat and try to plug that site the historic CSF leak rates were unfortunately very high Um, 25 30 even up to 40 percent was uh, commonly seen and obviously that degree of uh, postoperative complication wasn't very well accepted when there are other approaches and then so what ended up happening was in 2006 uh, a very illustrious uh, group, actually, here at the UPMC, uh, before either Dr. Toby and I were here, uh, began to start with an anatomical study using uh, the posterior septal branch of the sphenopalatine artery to provide blood supply to the nasal septum. And they essentially inverted this nasal septal flap and placed it up against the cella, now providing a piece of tissue and flap that was arterially supplied and essentially could live on its own. And this was really a huge turning point in uh, reconstruction for endoscopic skull base surgery because now we had a, a valuable and relatively easy-to-harvest uh, reconstructive technique which dramatically reduced the CSF leak rates to where they currently live now, which is usually broadly accepted to be less than 10%, and in most centers, somewhere between 5 and 7%. And so that paradigm was really a significant um, a significant event in skull-based surgery. And I think it highlights one of the key things about skull-based surgery, which is that this is really a dynamic team surgery. So there are many surgeries that we do that um, you use multiple teams in otolaryngology, like, for instance, head and neck reconstruction, um, for large ablative cases. A lot of times there's a ablative surgical team and a reconstructive team. And skull-based surgery is similar in that it, it required, or it's frequently done with a two-team approach. And it was really through this combination of um, Skull-based surgery entering into the intercradial space, the neurosurgical space traditionally, and otolaryngology having a huge knowledge of both the nasal cavity, its vascularization, and the potential for these reconstructive techniques that really kind of have brought us to our current status. And um, it's, a, it's the blending of these two specialties that I think has made this field so dynamic and so exciting for so many of us, I, I think including both Dr. Choby and myself.
1: Yeah, I I agree 100%. And that that's a really, really nice summary of sort of where we've come from and where we are now. And I, I certainly agree with the the importance of the sort of co-pilot or co-surgeon technique with many of these cases. So Eric, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, in your experience, how how does this merger occur? So there's both the otolaryngology team and the neurosurgical team. There's a lot of things in the background as well that must be considered, things like departmental support or coordination of operating rooms and those kind of things. So maybe you could speak to a few of those items uh, as they relate to endoscopic skull base surgery and reconstruction.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that's a that's a really um, great question, and one that is in some ways very nuanced. Uh, I think different teams found different pathways to it, but it starts with having individuals who really care about it, um, because it takes a, a commitment, uh, both from the otolaryngology side as well as the neurosurgical side to... Uh, work to work together and find a way to make it happen. So, I think you need to first start with that baseline desire to work together, and both sides can see the benefit of having the expertise of the other side. Uh, I've learned so much neuroanatomy from my neurosurgical partners over the years, um, and in the same way, I hope that I provided some knowledge about nasal function and endoscopy. And you know, it's that mutual appreciation of the other other team's skill set and knowledge, I think, that paves the way for that. But once you get beyond that base requirement, one of the greatest challenges is keeping a team together and, um, you know, finding a way to make the logistics of it work, as you were alluding to. Um, It very much helps if you have institutional support. If the institution feels that this is an important avenue and approach to to, uh, to have available for patients if they believe in the benefits of it, then that really helps to line up the logistics of providing operating room time so both sides can be there. Um, we really believe in trying to line up the clinical time as well Because patient convenience is a big factor in this. Patients want to be able to see both surgeons uh, without having to make multiple trips. And so we try to line up our clinics uh, in addition to the other uh, services that are involved, including ophthalmology, endocrine surgery, uh, excuse me, endocrine um, medicine, uh, especially if you happen to have a neuroendocrinologist. And so lining up all those various parts of the team takes a lot of diligence and coordination. But once that, that happens, I think you can begin to consider this idea of a center of excellence, where what you're able to do is provide a multidisciplinary approach to any particular tumor, and that allows you to now have uh, the opportunity to provide the patient the very, very best uh, options, whether it be surgical or non-surgical. And um, I think that's where patients start to begin to get a lot of value out of it. And then it's also very rewarding for you as a, a, a physician and provider that you're able to give the patient the very, very best opportunity. So I think that there are a lot of um, nuances to, as we often say, learning to dance, getting everyone to coordinate together. But I think that um, once that, once those uh, learning pains are sort of over, the end product is really, really um, a very valuable thing for both the patient and then for us as the healthcare team.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think those are all really important aspects to think about Uh, as you think about, you know, starting a team and taking on these sort of cases. Now, as we get a little bit more nuanced into the skull base reconstruction realm, I I wonder, Dr. Wong, if you could talk to us a bit about what what sort of patients are we talking about that may need skull base reconstruction? So what kind of pathologies, tumors, locations are are we thinking about that may be applicable to these
0: situations? That's a great question, Garrett. So starting out, I think that we, we all start out with pituitary tumors. Um, predominantly, that's pituitary macroadenomas when we begin, and then functional pituitary tumors. And the reason we start there is because number one has the highest prevalence. It's probably the only tumor that has sort of wild, widespread prevalence um, such that you could actually identify it individually as a pathology that stands alone. Um, and so... There's a couple advantages of starting with pituitary tumors. Number one, it's very easily accessed uh, through the sphenoid sinus. So it's kind of very much in our wheelhouse. Uh, number two, the tumors in general are typically pretty soft. And so they're easy for the two teams to work with. And number three is they tend to be um, kind of central, centrally located such that um, all of our skill sets are really lined up the tumor access tends to be in the right plane the reconstruction tends to be in the right plane so it's the real ideal tumor and the outcomes generally speaking are very very good um, but then once you expand beyond pituitary tumors now we get to a variety of more rare pathology so looking immediately superior to that the two most common things that we deal with that in the next stage are cranial pharyngiomas and tuberculum meningiomas. So as you know, meningiomas can occur anywhere that there's dura and dural lining. But tuberculum ones are interesting in that they tend to present somewhat early with uh, visual decreases. So again, like bitemporal hemianopsias. Um, and then craniopharyngiomas are an ideal corridor because the transcranial corridors that, you, that are typically used, you have to work around the optic nerves. While in this particular setting, we work underneath and, and behind the optic apparatus. So those are the next two pathologies that most people sort of move on to. And then as we go more anterior than that, we get into the tumors that we as otolaryngologists care about a lot. So um, then we start to look at things like, Meninga seals, like uh, meningoencephaloceles for children, which kind of falls into that uh, spontaneous CSF leak talk that we had previously discussed. Um, but additionally, uh, we can also think about things like sinonasal cancers. And it's amazing how different we're able to now consider and treat these uh, tumors. Um, you know, we started off with benign tumors like inverted papilloma. And now we, uh, in many centers, including, I believe Dr. Toby's and mine, we do quite a bit of malignancies uh, through this endonasal corridor. And the benefits towards uh, facial aesthetics, um, function, uh, hospitalization times I think there's a multitude of benefits to it, you know, we're, and we're still trying to prove others. but you know the early analyses of these uh, rare tumors show that, you know, the uh, margin-negative resections are actually very parallel. And so it's a really an area of intense investigation, I think, among many centers, but it also is very much in our otolaryngology wheelhouse. And then as we look inferiorly, we start looking at clival tumors like uh, chordomas and chondrosarcomas. And although there are many different and alternative ways to approach meningioma, perhaps clival chordoma is actually the the new workhorse case, um, because that's a tumor that grows in the bone of the clivus, which sits kind of behind the nasopharynx and makes up most of the um, lower sphenoid or most of the posterior sphenoid. And, you know, it really uh, is a bony tumor. And we have such beautiful and direct access to it through an endoscopic skull-based approach. And um, I think that you know, the alternatives like far laterals, um, they exist, but they kind of pale in comparison to the direct access that we can get through an endonasal approach. So, you know, this is a really exciting time as um, the indications for this, maybe we aren't expanding so much anymore, but our ability to be nuanced in our approach for these is really at an all time high. We can really make very clean and delineated decisions based upon tumor location and their relationship with key neurovascular structures. And, you um, and all of these tumors are now sort of in play for the endoscopic and nasal approach, with the one caveat being that we do have to be able to successfully reconstruct them, because we don't want to go back to that pre-2006 period where CSF leak or the reconstructive aspects of it become the greatest hindrance for the uh, successful surgical uh, approach. We, we really want reconstruction to continue to be walk parallel with uh, both the tumor resection and the surgical approach.
1: Yeah, perfect. That's a great summary of sort of the areas and the tumors that we're dealing with. And I think it also highlights the fact as something that you you once taught me that, you know, for things like chordomas, the endoscopic and nasal approach is not just the most minimally invasive option, but in some cases like that, also the the best maximal exposure you get to those tumor types. So like a really, really good summary there. Now, now as we transition from the, the tumors and locations, let's talk more about reconstruction. So as you think about uh, a particular case you're considering doing and you sort of know what the tumor is and the anatomy and surrounding uh, uh, areas, talk to me about what things you think about as far as patient factors go to how you may think about reconstructing that defect. In other words, things like where the defect is or perhaps what the patient's uh, personal characteristics or demographics are that may influence you in, in a choice of reconstruction.
0: Sure. So, you know, Dr. Shelby brings up probably the the most intellectual aspects of um, pre-op decision making here. And this is really where we have to understand both the anatomy um, as well as the idea of uh, the bony defect and the dural defect. And sometimes we think of them as synonymous, but actually they're slightly different. Um, So you know, the tumor types, some of them are purely intracranial tumors like meningiomas, while other things like sinonasal malignancies, they cross, um, they cross both boundaries. And so what we're trying to understand when we think about defect size is um, first the bony defect and then subsequently the dural defect. And this is oftentimes not only limited by... Um, surgical approach but oftentimes is more dictated by the adjacent anatomical structures so you know for instance in a clival defect it's the paraclival carotid arteries adjacent to the clivus which are really our limitations uh, towards getting further access and uh, the second thing we want to consider is that sometimes the bony exposure is going to be a little different than the dural exposure so sometimes the dural defect is somewhat smaller uh, than the bony defect and that can actually help us with our reconstruction because we're able to sometimes dissect a plane between the dura and the bone and actually able to use that as a buttress for reconstruction. So when we talk about defect size we want to differentiate between both the bony side as well as the dural side. So some areas we know have a very very high flow of CSF. So. Unfortunately, this is not something that we can, we, we've scientifically measured. It's more based upon observation and our, our understanding of CSF flow dynamics. But essentially, when you enter into uh, an arachnoid space or a cistern, then you're more likely to have a high flow CSF leak. So the classic examples of this are the supracellar cistern. So that's the area where the optic apparatus is. Um, that tends to be a high flow CSF leak area. Additionally, uh, posteriorly in the posterior fossa, you know, the pre-Pontine cistern or the area that sits right behind the clivus is also another high flow area. And maybe that's in contrast to the anterior cranial fossa, where the frontal lobes sometimes give us a little bit more of a low-flow leak, uh, because the frontal lobes can kind of descend into the space. Um, and that's also in comparison to low-flow leaks, like predominantly in the cella. So those are the tumor-based characteristics. Um, and once you start getting beyond the tumor, then you start thinking about your reconstructive technique. So if you're going to think about using a vascularized reconstruction, which most people like to use when you either have a high flow leak or you're truly into the intracranial space, um, now you start thinking about the dimensions of your nasal septal flap and how that relates to the defect size you're creating. So the classic example is the supercellular area. So the average defect there is probably about one and a half to two centimeters, even with a pretty broad defect. And the reason is that your optic nerves sort of limit how far laterally you can go, and the pituitary is immediately underneath you, so you can't usually sacrifice that. So the defect sizes tend to be well within the size for which the nasal septal flap broadly covers over this. In contrast, you know, when you go to the anterior cranial fossa, sometimes you don't even have this the... The septum to work with if it's involved with cancer, but even if you do, you know the the breadth and width is usually more like a four by three centimeter defect, and that's really kind of at the edges of what the nasal septal flap can cover. So that starts getting you thinking about what you might need to do to augment that vascularized reconstruction. And then the last thing that um, kind of remains controversial is how much is the role of um, BMI or body mass index, uh, play into, into the reconstruction. So um, there are definitely many reports for which um, increased body habitus or increased BMI are associated with uh, higher rates of CSF leak. Um, and that's believed to because that the increase in the body mass index is subsequently uh, results in an increase in intracranial uh, pressures. So, as you can imagine, since we can't suture any of these reconstructive techniques, which is probably one of the greatest um, limitations of the endoscopic endonasal uh, skull based surgery, um, if you have an increased pressure gradient from the uh, intracranial side pushing against your, your reconstruction, that could theoretically uh, worsen uh, the. The function of your graphs and your flaps and displace them, and so that's kind of the driving principle of that. And um, so, I have myself have published papers that have shown BMI having some effect, at least in uh, univariate uh, analysis. And uh, certainly, the Iowa and the Mayo group have actually published, I believe, uh, some on pituitaries. And so, there there is really. Um, There's really some evidence that supports that, but it's certainly not the only answer. But at least it plays a minor role in your thinking um, about what sort of reconstruction. If you have a patient where you think that the intracranial pressures are very high, it may push you towards using a more robust reconstruction if you're sort of on the fence. And um, that can also be with things that are like third ventricular tumors and whatnot, which also cause uh, hydrocephalus or any sort of increased pressure phenomena. So I think that those are the key factors in my mind. Um, the other factors that people sometimes cite, which are not as uh, clearly supported in the literature, are things like uh, preoperative radiation, previous endonasal surgery, uh, previous skull based surgery, they may all factor in, and anecdotally, a lot of times as surgeons, we sort of believe them to uh, factor in. But when we look at them um, in a more uh, systematic review manner, we still don't have enough evidence to strongly state one way or the other yet. Um, do you have any differing opinions on that, Dr. Chobie? Are there any other things that you add into that algorithm that I don't?
1: No, I think I think those those are all a, a great summary. I, I will say that I, I also give some consideration to the body habitus. Uh, I I think that you know we we all operate on many folks who have a very high BMI. And it just seems like anecdotally, at least, and at least some preliminary evidence that they do have an increased risk of of leak postoperatively. So I may lean more towards putting a vascularized flap on those folks, even if it's a cellar defect, uh, more so than something like a free graft, if I, if I think they have elevated intracranial pressure as a result of their body habitus. But uh, no, it's a, really, it's a really good summary. And I, I thought the, the next area we, we could explore a little bit is when we think about the actual uh, reconstruction from sort of a stepwise approach or, or a ladder, if you will, I, I think it'd be beneficial to our listeners to talk a little bit about um, sort of an, the inlay and onlay concept and what layers you're approaching. And then in particular, how you think about inlays, in other words, when you may use them, and if so, w- what materials you may consider for an inlay uh, when you tend to utilize them.
0: Sure. Sure. So sometimes it's actually a confusing concept this inlay onlay and um and, and the truth is some people try to blend them together or actually they try to put them together so that they have a combination inlay onlay graft at the same time even sometimes by suturing two things together so that they could c- create that um sort of they call it a button you know uh a- approach but um essentially when we when we think about inlay we're we're sort of thinking about something that sits in the intracranial space and that is supported by the surrounding dura, such that um there's a nice overlap around each of the dural edges, so that it's it's covering over the entirety of the defect from an intracranial side, and then an the onlay graft actually a little bit counterintuitively because we're kind of coming from below, actually sits over or, or covers over the bony defect from the endonasal side, so um again ideally this would have. Uh, significant overlap around the periphery of this. And sometimes the, you know, complex anatomy of the skull base doesn't really allow that to be particularly smooth. You know, it's it's uh, it's certainly not a flat space. You know, it's a three-dimensional space with uh, many contours. But the idea of an overlay is it sits in the nasal cavity, and it can um, surround uh, the periphery of the dura. Now, sometimes that same onlay can kind of be placed in a in a plane between the dura and the bone itself. So that epidural plane, um, as you all recall, kind of lies between the dura and the bone. And you can actually dissect that that plane just like you would dissect periosteum off of any other bony surface. And that can provide like a, a basically a Uh, a small pocket for which you can tuck that onlay graft around and I I really like that technique when I do anterior cranial fossa reconstruction because the orbits usually give me um, some area to tuck around and kind of sling it like a hammock uh, for for some of the reconstructive uh, onlay graphs. And so most of our flaps, or essentially all of our flaps, we, we use in an onlay manner, at least when we talk about endoscopic skull-based reconstruction. So don't get too caught up with the where the flaps lie. The flaps almost always have to sit in an onlay position. Um, and so those those are kind of the basics of the nomenclature associated with reconstruction, inlay, onlay. And people use varying degrees of, of both. Uh, I would tell you in general, I tend to be one of those proponents of always using an inlay uh, material. I, I don't use something that's usually watertight. I usually use a collagen-like matrix, um, and uh, there are a lot of different proprietary um, types of them uh, from uh, different sources, but these are not harvested from the patient. These are almost always um, Manufactured or processed in another way. And I like that to sort of reapproximate the arachnoid layer. Um, I believe that if I have to go back for a revision, that this layer kind of prevents some of the more uh, sturdy underlay layers from scarring to the brain or other critical neurovascular structures. Um, Because certainly, uh, that's kind of our goal here, is we're trying to create a very well-defined scar, which eventually becomes our watertight seal. You know, in contrast, other people uh, believe in putting um, things like fascia uh, on a... um, and an inlay graft, and you know, I do think that actually does help with the reconstruction. It may make it actually more robust, um, but the downside may be that if you do need to go back and do a revision, if you have a tumor recurrence, that it may be a little bit of a challenge to uh, separate that from things like your optic nerves, your hypophyseal arteries, your pituitary stalk. So I tend to use a collagen uh, layer for my uh, for my inlay material. Do you do something different, Dr. Chobe?
1: You know, great great question. I, we, we do tend to do something very similar. Um, we use a lot of collagen matrix as an inlay. We, we will use uh, fascia lotta, especially for our anterior cranial base defects or in someone who has a large sinusoidal malignancy resection who may be getting radiation postoperatively. We do tend to use fascia lotta in those folks. But for our smaller defects, we, we tend to use the collagen matrix a lot. And I, I think for, for the reasons you mentioned, it, it is a very nice option uh, for, for, for many of those cases, to be quite honest with you.
0: Yeah um, and you're actually showing a great nuance there too because you know the anterior cranial fossa even though the frontal lobes are important it you know they're they're, they're a little bit less sensitive than things like your optic nerves or these very fine vessels like your hypophyseal vessels which are really important for your pituitary function diabetes insipidus as well as vision um, and the anterior cranial fossa does have some important vessels like you know your frontal polar vessels but in, in the relative scheme, they're a little bit less sensitive. And so you're showing, I think, a lot of nuance in that, in that that's an area that can tolerate it. And your goals are also quite different. You know, you, you're you probably in, in the setting of sinonasal cancer, really trying to make sure you don't have a CSF leak because you really want to get the patient to radiation as soon as possible, right? And so you can see that with, with reconstruction, you're you're actually always blending in a lot of different factors, both upon anatomy as well as... Um, as well as what your what your long term goals are. And so I mean, I, I think that that really shows a lot of that nuance. Um, yeah. Should I move on to onlay? Do you want to talk about onlay?
1: Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit, you know, you, you alluded to earlier, the importance of the nasal septal flap development in around uh, 2006, which really helped to revolutionize things. But you know, other options are available. So I, I wonder if, if the next area to explore would be You're talking about with your onlays or or your nasal reconstruction side, maybe both things like free grafts and maybe some select situations, as well as the vascularized reconstructive options that we have available to us.
0: Sure. So I actually really do like free mucosal grafts. Um, I think that they are, you know, they have such little nasal morbidity and um, you can really tailor them to your defects because you're not rotating things around very much. And I think that patients, uh, when you choose them well, they actually have a little bit less early nasal morbidity associated with free grafts. Yeah, so I like a, a lot for cellar defects, for which there's just like a very low flow uh, CSF leak. Um, so I, I would say actually that's the majority of time, um, you know, where sometimes the diaphragma over the pituitary tumor has been so thinned out that, it's not so watertight anymore and there's like a weeping of CSF. I find that a free graft works beautifully in that setting. Patients heal very well, uh, whether you harvest it from the nasal floor or if you happen to resect a middle terminate for that particular case, The mucosa from that is not wasted, and um, it just provides a little extra support there, and I think that it helps promote the healing process. It's very similar to a skin graft that we use in everywhere else in in otolaryngology, where it does depend on imbibement to live, you know. But um, as we pack and support that, you know, these grafts take really, really well, probably because it's in an ideal... Wound healing environment with raw surface edges, um, but the downside of them is that when you try to use them in higher flow uh, CSF leaks, that sometimes um, or the the data suggests that they're not as um, they're not as successful. So the paper that most people quote, uh, the first author is Richard Harvey, and it really uh, is a, a systematic review and comparison, which really shows that free graft repair tends to have about a free graft, excuse me. That's like the free tissue, like the free mucosal grafts are about a 15% leak rate compared to vascularized reconstruction, which drops it down to 7.2, 7.5, something like that. So it's almost a 50% reduction. And um, and that was really um, quite key in sort of separating those two. But again, the caveat to that being that with low flow leaks, the success rates may be much more equitable. And I think that... um, that's where we tend to like to use free mucosal grafts. And as otolaryngologists, we're really, uh, I think quite skilled and we can quite, we can harvest them with minimal, if any morbidity, um, and, um, with, and and allow the healing to happen in a very expeditious manner. Um, but then, you know, that leads to this whole other area where a lot of skull-based surgery is going, which is, um, you know, these high flow CSF leaks. And we talked about nasal septal flaps and, um, I think there's lots of uh, beautiful videos on how to harvest these and how you can extend them to I- increase uh, some of the reach by harvesting some of the nasal floor. Um, and so I think that that's our tried and true option. It's, it's kind of our workhorse reconstruction for, for the vast majority of these things. Um, but then there are also some other intranasal flaps. Um, the one I tend to use as my sort of salvage situation next is a um, lateral nasal wall inferior turbinate flap. Is that the same algorithm that you use, Touchy? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think I think that you and I probably have uh, pretty similar philosophies on skull base reconstruction, as well as many things in life. So that that's definitely my my second go to for at least cases of clival defects, cellar defects. Now, of course, anterior cranial base reach is limited there, but certainly in those areas, that's my that's my next go to.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, it is technically a much more challenging flap to raise uh, because you have the concavity of the uh, inferior turbinate to work around, and the bone there is not smooth. I mean, all of you guys have done inferior turbinate reductions uh, in your past or some mucosal inferior turbinate reductions, and you know dissecting that plane sometimes is is not entirely simple without getting any tears. But again, this is still based off of the. Um, of the sphenopalatine artery as it arises from the pterygopalatine fossa, and in this branch, um, actually, there's two large branches that come down. Uh, the larger of the two actually goes to the inferior meatus. And the uh, smaller of the two goes to the uh, medial portion of the inferior turbinate. and um, So one of my really outstanding fellows recently, uh, Philippe Levine, did an anatomic uh, study with case series on this, which is hopefully going to get published in uh, the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology soon. It's been accepted, but I don't know when it's going to actually get published. But it shows the anatomical differentiation. And it justifies, in some ways, going through that extra hassle of harvesting the inferior meatus uh, because of the uh, increased blood supply to that area. And I think that there are some, um, also some very nice papers uh, showing that its vascular supply on MRI. So this is truly a, an arterially supplied flap, um, but you do have to sort of work around uh, the inferior turbinate. Um, the reconstructive surface itself is quite a bit smaller than the nasal septal flap. I usually end up using most of the lateral nasal wall as the predominant reconstructive surface with only a part of the inferior turbinate. And then the uh, last small, uh, theoretical risk is that we do have to uh, lift the area out of Hazard's valve where the uh, nasal lacrimal duct ends. Um, And so theoretically, there's a risk of epiphora that can occur from this. Uh, Although anecdotally, I haven't seen this uh, with any frequency at all, but it's a theoretical risk there. And the other theoretical risk is that unfortunately, most of that inferior turbinate bone doesn't survive and can't be remucosalized. And so that has a theoretical risk of Perhaps promoting uh, empty nose syndrome as well, so these are things to think about.
1: yeah, good point. I, I do find that these patients don't tend to get those symptoms as much as some other patients we may experience, but it is certainly a, a you know theoretical mm-hmm. risk for sure. now you know you, you alluded to earlier you know as, as sort of a nice segue that in some cases, such as maybe a sinonasal malignancy, your intranasal recon options may not be there, so the septum may be involved by tumor or perhaps your inferior terminus have a great reach there. And in those cases, there there are regional options. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about uh, things like pericranial flaps or temporal parietal fascial flaps and how they may play a role uh, in this reconstruction.
0: Absolutely. I mean, sinonasal cancer is really a challenge um, because it tends to present so late and uh, the tumors... Um, don't have much anatomical space to grow they grow into things quite rapidly and especially since a lot of the primary nasal cavity tumors like a neuroblastoma crossing over the midline uh, may eliminate the nasal septum very quickly uh, from the algorithm so um, some people still continue to use uh, multiple fascial layers or even um, acellular uh, allografts to do their anterior craniofacial fossa reconstructions and they have a lot of success with them um, but others of us have ha- have not had quite the positive experience with that. And so that prompted people to start looking, well, what can we do to cover the anticranial fossa with vascularized tissue? Again, going back to that concept that vascularized reconstruction has a lower uh, risk of failure than non-vascularized reconstruction. And so um, the pericranial flap has been a tried and true uh, vascularized reconstructive technique for anterocranial fossa, open craniofacial resections for a long time. Um, the tissue is built off of the uh, supratrochlear and superorbital vessels. And so it has two arterial supplies uh, from both sides. It can actually be harvested, both the right and the left side. And when we did bicoronal incisions to uh, access the anterocranial fossa, it was readily available. And so um, as we began to shift towards using endoscopic techniques so that we wouldn't have to retract the frontal lobes, the pericranial flap is still there. And so um, the initial study was actually um, described by Adams and Nation using uh, multiple small uh, incisions an endoscopic technique, um, very similar to an endoscopic brow technique that you might use in uh, facial plastic surgery um, to harvest this. Um, Some of us have kind of moved away from that and now just make the bicoronal incision and harvest this pericranial flap. But the challenge then became, well, how do you get it into the nasal cavity since you you don't have that craniotomy um, to work through? And so the uh, fairly clever technique that was sort of uh, derived by by Dr. Snyderman and Zanation and Crow at the time was to actually make a small nasotomy. So make a small bone and a small opening in the nasal bones, right kind of at the nasal frontal suture. And, um, and then the, the pericranial flap can be tucked in through that level. And actually, interestingly, that level is essentially right at where the anterior cranial fossa uh, defect is. It sort of mostly matches up with the posterior table defect for most of these defects. And then it comes right across from that. Um, Now, its downsides are that it could uh, block off the frontal sinuses. And so many of us continue to use a draft three frontal sinusotomy to make a broad opening to try to prevent that. And um, it it doesn't heal as quickly as a mucosal line surface because it's really more like a vascularized fascial layer. And so it can tend to crust and take longer to heal but it is a very robust vascularized reconstruction. The tissue can be uh, quite large. You can even harvest it unilaterally or bilaterally, and you can reconstruct very large defects, actually all the way back to the optic nerves using a pericranial flap. And so uh, this has become um, our go-to option when we don't have intranasal uh, vascularized reconstruction, especially for things like sinonasal malignancy. do you do you have a similar approach to that, Doctor? We, we
1: do, we do. Yeah, we we like that option a lot, especially um, w- when there's very little options left in the nose. We have also occasionally used things like a multi-layer uh, fasciolata uh, graft in some situations, but to get to get a nice vascularity, the pericranial flap is really nice in that area. And I'll also echo it's a little confusing when you first start doing it in regards to the relationship of the flap to the external sort of uh, world then introducing it intranasally but still uh, allowing your frontal sinus to flow around it so i think that draft three is a very important uh part of that you know for sure what any any experience at all with with reconstructing things more posteriorly with that flap so things towards the clivus, or do you tend to learn lean towards temporal parietal fascia flap there
0: so we have. We, we have used um, per, pericranial flaps for that. Um, so we actually looked at our, our, our failures in clival defects and actually found that pericranial flaps were probably the best answer for us um, for some of those early failures. Um, I think that work is um, getting vetted right now in, in some of the school-based journals. Um, but we actually found that it was, it was pretty reliable for us. Now, it does require um, you to do you know, repeat the sinus work. Sometimes you can just do it down one side, like one ethmoid roof and planum. And you do have to harvest a fairly long flap. But um, it does seem to be uh, a very reasonable option for that. Temporal parietal fascia um, is, uh, again, a very robust uh, flap. Um, you do have to, that's based off your superficial temporal artery. So the harvesting of it uh, requires some meticulous dissection. I personally doppler it out first uh, through the skin. Uh, kind of like we we do for perforators for ALTs and whatnot, um, and kind of actually trace out the whole vessel, because it is very superficial. As you know, we can all feel our super superficial temporal, like right in front of our oracle, and um, so it is very it, it is superficial. So the harvest of it has to be done with um, some care, but uh, learning how to harvest it, I think, is not too difficult for most of us as otolaryngologists. But the inset into the nasal cavity it can be quite tricky. Um, the couple caveats I've learned over the years is I, I now make a lateral canthotomy, <laughs> uh, like, uh, sometimes we do for trauma or, uh, for tarsorophy or, um, you know, for doing a tarsal sling. And that gives me a, a corridor, uh, right over the temporalis muscle and gives me an extra closer set of hands. Um, and then we still have to sort of trocar it in, um, into the side of the, um, into the side of the maxillary sinus or the uh right where the um infratemporal fossa becomes the uh fossa and so it's that trocaring it in of the flap which is always to me very very challenging and always um i'll be honest with you i sometimes i find i worry about how my flap's going to hold up <laughs> with all that manipulation into the cavity but it is because it's laterally based, it does have a, a good lower reach, and so um, it's still a long way. You have to sort of pass it along the posterior maxillary wall or the pterygopalatine fossa, then immediately above the eustachian tube, then into the clival defect. So there's a lot of twists and turns um, to get it into that space. But um, but that being said, it, it is a good reconstructive option. Um, it does take some work, um, you know, and takes quite a bit of a bit of meticulous dissection to end, and passage of the flap into the space. But it, it is a, a good regional option. Uh, perhaps not any of our favorites to use, but it's it's certainly there for us. Do you have any difference in, in your experience with that? No, I, I agree 100 percent I
1: admittedly this is I don't I don't tend to raise this flap very often. Um, if I if I have something that's down low towards the clivus, um I'll really do my very best to raise some sort of lateral nasal wall, inferior termin, or extended flap in that way, and get it to rotate over. But this does play a role in those cases. It, is, I will echo you. The challenge, I think, is primarily getting it from outside through, you know, the the maxillary sinus, PPF area, then swinging around back towards the clivus. There's a lot of twists and turns there, and and you worry that that artery takes a lot of kinks along the way. But as you mentioned, it's 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 a robust flap, and certainly it, it plays a role in, in in some of these scenarios. And then lastly, I think just just briefly, there are some situations where either nothing else is available or nothing else has worked. And, you know, you may end up turning towards a free flap in some of those situations. In my practice, this is, this is pretty rare scenarios. Um, you know, I, th- I think that you have some experience uh, in this and uh, presented a, a nice case, I believe, last year as well. So maybe you could just briefly talk about, you know, when you might think about a free flap.
0: Yeah, so this is kind of it's very similar to the reconstructive ladder we think about in in, in our other areas of otolaryngology. And um, so free flap is kind of the end answer. Uh, The challenge is the inset, you know, the inset and then the passage of the vessel. And so um, we have largely, you know, again, thankfully don't have a gigantic experience in this, but um, it's usually in situations where all of our reconstructive options are burned. um, And it, oh for us it's essentially always been in the posterior fossa, in the clivus. This is really where we had to use this. Um and uh you know we we've we experimented with both um ALT fastest as well as radial forearm and largely I've kind of come to the point where I really like the radial forearm the best. I think the tissue is more pliable and easy to work with as far as the insect goes. Um but basically, the vascular pedicle hooks up to the facial arteries, and it, um, and we create that space by performing uh, maxillotomies. So using a traditional Caldwell-Luck approach, like a gingival vocal sulcus incision, um, I tend to make a hole in the anterior uh, maxilla in the canine fossa. Um, and then laterally, I like to preserve so I personally like to preserve the buttress, you know, the zygomatic maxillary buttress, and then make a lateral maxillotomy. And then medially I make an endoscopic medial maxillectomy. So there's basically the only thing left in the maxillary are its buttresses. <laughs> uh, when, by the time we're done, you know, it's a, a, a nasal maxillary buttress and a zygomax, zygomatic maxillary buttress. But that gives us access to the to the masseteric space and the pre-masseteric space for which you can create a tunnel, you know, a, a soft tissue tunnel down to the facial vessels. And then the vessels. Then are passed over our, uh, over the posterior maxillary wall, very similar to what we're talking about with the temporal parietal uh, fascial flap. And then the uh, and then the free flap can then be inset, uh, predominantly for me, into the clival defect. And I will admit to you, I uh, put on a headlight, and I often take the distal end and I sew it, kind of like using a. Um, a adenoid, uh, an adenoidectomy approach where I retract the soft palate and actually put in uh, sutures on the uh, most inferior end into the basal pharyngeal fascia because so, I feel like that, that kind of gives us that last layer of support there and I find that most of the leaks happen on the most inferior aspect of it and then we can able to pack the rest of it in a, tradi- a traditional skull-based fashion um, I guess that kind of segues us into packing material, but you know, I think that I tend to like to use gel foam predominantly in the central portion of the cavity. You know, there's a lot of controversy about uh, things like oxidized cellulose on the periphery and how much epithelial damage it may create. Although I still tend to use that sort of like a Scotch tape around the flap, and then and then pack it with a gel foam, and then I think the, and then the final layer of packing I think is a little bit of a uh, you know, it's still something we're sort of understanding and exploring. We, we haven't really done this in a very scientific way at all. Most of this is anecdotal, but um, increasingly people are moving away from non-absorbable packing to absorbable packing. Um, I think there's a lot of patient comfort associated with it. But I will admit in things like uh, clival defects, especially if I'm using radio forearm free flaps, I, I have a tendency to, to put in um, non-absorbable sponges in that setting just to really try to get as much pressure up against it as possible.
1: Yeah, I, I do the same. For, for most of my routine things, I tend to use uh, absorbable packing. But for those situations where perhaps it's a sinusoidal latency with a large anterior cranial-based defect or a clival defect, I, I tend to go towards uh, a non-absorbable sponge in those situations. Uh, and I, I tend actually to use, to use a gloved mirror cell in most of those situations.
0: Yeah, that's my favorite too. I feel like it comes out quite well. It's a little bit less uncomfortable. What do you do for your supercellular defects at this point? Uh, for things like tuberculum meningioma and, and cranio, I think that's kind of where yeah. I'm sort of in between.
1: I I agree with you. That that's a tough area because it can be quite a high flow leak. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when we have a nice inlay with, say, you know, some sort of collagen matrix, then I have a nice flap to put over that. I, I still will use um reservoir pack in those situations. So I, I tend mm-hmm. to use um, you know, just similar things, oxide cellulose around the edges, and then I'll use gel foam centrally. I, I do use um, usually some sort of tissue glue. It's probably uh, probably more belt and suspenders than anything. I don't have too much confidence in that. And then I, I will use um, some sort of non-absorbable packing from there, and I, it seems to work pretty well in most of the situations, um, you know, to, to date. But I think a, a non-absorbable option is, is not wrong in that situation for sure.
0: Yeah, I think that's where I am kind of at, at my point too. Is like um, I, I like the non-absorbables. I think the patients like the non. I mean, I'm sorry, the patients like the resor- absorbable packing. It's certainly more comfortable. They, um, I, and and that's kind of where I am in my in my learning curve with that too is I'm using it in those supercellular defects when I feel pretty confident in the rest of the reconstruction. And then, you know, it's kind of slowly expanding, but for clival defects and, and the big, um, the big, uh, synonasal malignancies where my big goal is just to get them to radiation, you know, soon, I tend to still be pretty conservative, but I'm, I'm sort of growing and learning through that as well. Yeah,
1: I agree. It is, it is pain for the patient, you know, for instance, you have, you know, a, a big defect and the septum's gone and you've got maybe, you know, four or five of those mirror cells in there. It is certainly uncomfortable, but I think the the importance of getting the radiation and getting them healed up is, is probably worth uh, the, the discomfort, you know. Um, now, I wanted to ask you uh, briefly, you know, through the years, lumbar drains have been utilized and, and maybe fell out of favor more so recently. You have done some work in this regard and the entire uh, UPMC group has done a lot of work in this regard. Maybe just talk to us uh, briefly about your experience with lumbar drains and when you may consider them and and when they may have benefit.
0: Sure. So um, I think what you're referring to, Dr. Joby, is our uh, randomized control trial on lumbar drainage. And, um, you know, randomized control trials are – i mean they're they're really wonderful to have as a data point they 're hard to uh, accomplish, but basically what we did is we 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 did randomize these patients to either three days of lumbar drainage uh, after surgery or not, and we are blinded to whether we were going to drain them till after the surgery was completed. So we put our lumbar drains in at the very end when we did so and we we found a clear and significant benefit of lumbar drainage but there is a a couple caveats to that um, firstly low flow cellular defects weren't even considered in this study we didn't even consider them as part of it so we don't use it as a routine pituitary defects or you know um, spontaneous csf leaks those are those are separate but um when we're starting to talk about high flow uh large dural defect um so our inclusion criteria was one by one centimeter uh, dural defect and um so in the supercellar region, actually, we didn't find a benefit to lumbar drainage, and it's just as you were talking about um, the the size of the of the nasal septal flap, the reconstruction in comparison to the size of the bony defect, um, the nasal septal flap provides wonderful and broad coverage over all the edges, you know, and so in that particular situation, um, actually, lumbar drainage wasn't beneficial. So for supercellar defects, we don't use them. Um, And again, I think this is a product of both tumor location um, and size uh, of the defect in comparison to the size of our reconstructive material, our predominant reconstructive material. Um, In contrast, though, the posterior fossa, where the nasal septal flap is actually barely large enough to cover, even when you extend it to its maximum dimensions, uh, we actually found a clear benefit to lumbar drainage. Um, It was pretty dramatic, actually. Um, This was probably the driving force where we had to stop our study early at an interim data safety analysis because of the clear difference between it. But it was almost like a 30% CSF leak rate from the posterior fossa without lumbar drainage, and it dropped to less than 10% with. So, that was a pretty drastic difference. And it's really changed our practice philosophy.
1: Absolutely. And, and I would also just say, you know, in general, kudos for doing a randomized controlled trial in, in a world where we do very little of those for this type of work. So, I think that was a really important uh, landmark
0: publication. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, and I think it was um, a lot of people being diligent. I know you actually contributed to that when you were here. Everyone had to chip in. It's, it certainly wasn't an easy thing to accomplish. It required actually the work of many, many, many people who are not actually listed uh, on the final publication. Um, but uh, so the last area is the anterior fossa. And, and this is, again, where some nuance occurs. We did find a benefit to the anterior fossa of lumbar drainage. Um, but the caveat to that is that... Um, it's very small percentage of ascesios that were in it. So it was 20, uh, 22, 23 uh, uh, olfactory group meningiomas and only eight ascesios. And interestingly, uh, the eight ascesios, there's no leaks in any of them, whether we drained or didn't drain. So I think this is an area that, you know, at some point, it may be worth it for us as a, a large, a larger group of skull-based surgeons to go back and re-explore because I think that there, um, there's some – caveat there that might make it interesting for us to understand that better yeah
1: no that's a, that that is a great point for sure and I think it also speaks to your earlier uh, discussion of you know location of defect and how that may affect flow things like the posterior cranial fossa you guys know, compared to other areas that that makes a lot of sense um, and I know that we're we're um, getting ready to turn the corner here on time I just wanted to, to briefly talk a little bit about post-operative care for many of these patients and, and I realize that this is a fairly heterogeneous patient group so it's difficult to answer some of these questions with a blanket answer. But as far as post-operative care goes, how do you think about antibiotics for these sort of patients?
0: When we use non-absorbable packing, I tend to use anti staph antibiotics for the duration of that packing. Um, You know, I know that the risk of toxic shock syndrome is small and antibiotics aren't necessarily evidence-based towards preventing it, but I think um, many of us still practice in that way. Um, when we moved to resorbable packing, I think that it was a, a shift for us in, in thinking about antibiotics and we're actually trying to study that now again. Um, but, uh, I tend to still use about five days of anti-staff antibiotics. How about you? I, I,
1: I do a very similar practice. Um, if it's someone who has a small cellar defect, we haven't put a flap up. I I, I won't in those cases, but if I put a flap in somebody where it's a larger defect then I, I do the same thing, I do five to seven days of an anti-staff antibiotic, I think it helps with crusting, to be honest, and then maybe has some other, you know, preventative effects as far as, as far as as infections go. Um, And then what about things like, you know, when do you have patients do saline sprays or rinses? When do you bring them back for debridement or examination, those kind of things?
0: Sure. So um, I tend to have them use nasal saline sprays for two weeks now, and then right around the two-week mark uh, for a high-flow defect, I start them on saline irrigations. Uh, for pituitary defects, I'm getting a little bit more liberal and maybe at a week I start up on saline irrigations. You know, I think there's some good flow dynamics to say that I actually doesn't get that much into the sphenoid anyway. Um, and that we're mostly just treating the nasal cavity. And if that's the case, then maybe we should try to make them as comfortable as they can. And they get into the habit of starting a little bit earlier. Um, I tend to do a very mild debridement on the first time. Um, uh, I usually see them at week one just to make sure everything's okay and um i just i'm trying to create for them a nasal cavity help them breathe comfortably out of their nose and then i tend to see them back around uh four to six weeks and there i'm actually i'm actually pretty aggressive with removing a lot of the gel foam at that point um i i think it just hasn't made much of a difference in 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 my experience with it again not well studied uh the area of a lack of data i would say um but I feel like most of the scar has largely happened at that time, at least in my belief. And um so a little bit more aggressive debrievement may help prevent more debriements in the future. Um but uh you know, in our in our iCar school base, you could see that there's essentially no data on any of this post operative care regimens at all. You know, this is all anecdotal and how we do it. Um, but that's that's kind of been my philosophy. I feel like it gets them out of my um out of having more debridements if I'm a little more aggressive up front before it starts to really firm up and harden up and it takes more effort to kind of get it taken care of. Uh, So I I don't know. Maybe I'm evolving as that goes along too, and maybe that just comes with more comfort in taking care of patients over the years.
1: Sure. Lifelong learning. (laughs) Always. (laughs) Always. And then last last point I just wanted to mention in this post-operative care area. We, we have more and more folks who are um, diagnosed with sleep apnea maybe on cpap especially i think about you know functional pituitary patients like ACTH secreting or growth hormone secreting and you don't you almost assume that many of them have sleep apnea how, how do you talk to them about about resuming their cpap postoperatively and managing that aspect of things
0: so um you and i are both very aware that this is an area where i think we should study um, I think we need to get better answers in it. I, I know that you and others are working on it already, um, and I hope to benefit from your research as you continue to investigate this area. Anecdotally, what I do right now is, you know, we we make the um, in their in their hospital time we make everyone very aware of their OSA status. So that means a minimization of narcotics, a minimization of anything that's going to uh, exacerbate their OSA. Um, And then we're pretty aggressive about our head-up philosophy in these patients, hoping to get some version of uh, positive pressure by just having them sleep more upright, right? Um, The analogy I often use for people is you never hear hardly anyone snoring on a plane. It's because they make us sit like 90 degrees, you know? Um, So most patients aren't willing to sleep 90 degrees. But if you're able to get 15, 20 degrees, that gives you almost like eight, you know, eight on their CPAP. So that gives you something. And then the the really severe people, then I supplement with some oxygen. Um, I usually don't have if it's just a cellular defect. I'm I'm usually willing to turn on their uh, CPAP right around ten days. Um, but for all of the other larger skull based defects, I usually wait a full two weeks.
1: Yeah, I I have a fairly similar regimen. I, I I obviously don't want to not treat their sleep apnea, but I also don't want them to you know get some air intracranially, which could cause some some bad problems. So. I think, I think that makes sense for sure. Um, and then just as we wrap up today, I, I wondered if you wanted to uh, mention anything to our listeners, maybe, you know, anything anecdotally or personal experience that has either changed over your practice in the last few years or major lessons you've learned based on your experience, um, just because you have such a, uh, an amazing wealth of experience with complex cases that I thought might be useful to give you, a, you know, an opportunity to share some of those things with us.
0: So, you know, Garrett, that's always a great question because it makes you think back on where you were and where you've gone. And, you know, I mean, I feel very blessed to have worked with amazing human beings who have not only um, been willing to learn with me, but actually taught me a great deal. Um, And so I think there's so many things that hopefully I've grown on, as you were saying, lifelong learning. Uh, And some of them are personal, like my understanding of intracranial anatomy, um, but if I were to say one kind of take home lesson to, uh, you know, a broad audience is that, you know, there's always a a new avenue to explore. Right. And, and like, just like we were talking about uh, lumbar drains or CPAP or complications in general, like there's so many areas that we can kind of grow in. And I feel like that's where I've probably grown the most is just uh, in that ability to recognize a deficiency in our in our knowledge base and a willingness to now to kind of tackle that um and i've learned that actually tackling it by yourself like we try to do with the lumbar drain trial is actually really hard and so i'm actually hoping that our future one of our futures is going to be that we're all going to tackle them in a much more multi-institutional manner and um i'm really excited about that uh potential in that future and um that's probably the thing I would encourage us the most is, you know, if we're not so worried about who's going to take credit for it, we can actually accomplish a lot together.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's a great point, and and I think just also working with other folks, uh, it it also is, is more enjoyable. You know, you, you get to know people better, and you get to share your joint experiences, and it, it can be a really
0: really helpful endeavor. So yeah, I, I agree. I yeah, and that for matters. and for the readers, you know, it's actually more applicable. You know, because if Doctor Choby does it that way, and Doctor Juan does it that way, and and you know, there's eight or ten of us working together it really does uh, suggest the broad scale applicability of it versus if one center does it, then, you know, there may be some factors associated with that one. So it's it's an exciting time for us. I think that the adoption of endoscopic scovate surgery in large part, because the reconstructions have gotten a lot better, have brought us to this point where we can answer and address some of these questions. And um, I'm really looking forward to what these next five to 10 years are going to show us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Well, Dr. Wong, I, I want to really thank you uh, for your time today. I'm going to briefly get into a quick summary of today's episode and a few questions for the listeners, but I think that um, I personally have, have greatly benefited from your mentorship and expertise through the years, so I really appreciate that, and uh, it's a joy always to, to talk with you, and I think that you're a tremendous teacher, so I hope that everyone has learned a lot from, uh, from your words of wisdom
0: today. Well, it's my pleasure, Dr. Choby, and I really uh, thank you again for the opportunity, and um, I'd be happy to do it again in the future. I right, appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, bye now.
1: So in summary, endoscopic skull base surgery is a field that has undergone rapid evolution over the past 15 to 20 years. The biggest jump forward was the ability to perform reconstruction well and prevent CSF leak in most cases. There are a number of options out there for reconstruction including vascularized reconstructive options and regional options. And a number of nuances must be considered in regards to these patients' post-operative care and, in, and a number of opportunities still exist out there in better understanding and defining this. Now, as we do at the end of each episode, I'll ask the listeners a question. We'll give you a, a bit of time to think about it, and then I'll give you an answer to it. Our first question today is to name some potential risk factors for a postoperative leak following endoscopic skull based surgery. So a number of factors exist out there, perhaps the most prominent of them is obesity and its relationship to elevated intracranial pressure. Other factors may be possible things like previous radiation therapy and the uh, defect location as well. As we think about uh, advantages of vascularized reconstruction options, what are some advantages of them over things like free mucosal grafts? So it's been shown that vascularized options have a lower risk of CSF leak postoperatively and high flow leaks, as well as a potential uh, improvement in postoperative radiotherapy and covering things like the carotid artery or other vascularized structures. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thanks so much for the time and we appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you next time on ENT in a nutshell.